0: So this is Pentecost Sunday, and uh, that's an exciting day. That means this is the the week in the church calendar where we remember that the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples of Jesus. And um, as Jesus said, it's better that I go so that the Helper may come. So we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming. We're also going to jump back into Luke this week um, and continue our series on the Gospel of Luke after our, our extended break over the last few weeks after Easter. So I want to read a passage of Scripture from Luke 8 today. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word of God? It says this. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, He did not let anyone go with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So my son Mays is, uh, is 10 years old. And so Sarah and I are one of those parents, we're a little bit like uh, jumpy, you know, like, hey, he's going to be a teenager soon, Right. You know, things are going to get rough real quick. So let's be prepared. Um, don't tell him I said this, but he started to get a little bit of hair under his armpit. <laughs> He's real embarrassed about it. Um, and, uh, and I, so we just like, we got to start talking to him about stuff, you know, like the birds and the bees, like we got to start talking about this stuff soon. And, uh, so Sarah's like, well, you got to do it. You know, like you're the dad, you know? And so we're, so this is the thing is like, we're, we really want to do this in a great way because the way it worked in my family is like, uh, my dad read us a book and it was like just incredibly uncomfortable, right? Like, it was just like horrible. And uh, so I was like, let's not do that. Let's try to have conversations when they come up. Let's try to have some intentional time together. Let's kind of plan out where we are headed um, so that as he engages this, this spot in his life, um, he will at least have some knowledge from his parents about what to expect, what's going to happen, and, and, and even just like where God is in, all the, in the midst of it all, right? So we had a plan, you know? We, we had like notes of things that we wanted to talk about over the next couple of years. Like this is honestly because we had this message of where we wanted to head with him. And I say all that because it's a funny story, and it was, even though we didn't read a book, it, just, it was just as awkward uh, as it was with my dad and my mom at that point, but... Um and he, you know, most of the time he just like, was like this with his head down, like, I don't want to hear about this, I'm 10 years old. That's basically how it was. Anyways, we had a plan, we had a point, we had a purpose of where we were taking him and where we want him to go over these next few years. We wanted to include certain information so that he could understand what's happening in his life and in his body and in his world that he's going to be experiencing moving forward. And I know this is a funny analogy, but I just I thought it was funny and I wanted to share with you. But I also wanted to say that, that when people, like the gospel writers, sometimes we just read the gospels and we just kind of assume that they just wrote down any story that happened during the time of Jesus. Like there was really not a lot of planning that went on. And in fact, what John says is that there are so many things that happened, so many things that Jesus did, so many things that Jesus taught about that couldn't all the books in the world couldn't contain it. It's basically what he says. And so when the gospel writers include a particular story, it means it has great significance. It means it has something that's, that's bigger than maybe what we see initially on the pages. It may mean more to the context with which it was written because it pointed them towards something that they needed to understand. In the same way that we came up with a plan for Mays and a, an eventual outcome that we're hoping to have, the information that he'll understand so that he can engage with this period of time in his life, so too Luke is writing this gospel so that we would understand why Jesus came, what Jesus is all about, why this matters. Okay? He chose this particular story instead of many other stories. And when we read the story, it sounds great. Wow, Jesus did a really cool miracle. Like, that sounds amazing. Like, he healed this woman, and then he raised this young girl to life. I mean, that's incredible, right? But what did it mean? Why did he do it? Why is this story included and not other ones where he healed other people? So I'm excited to, to dive in today and understand what's happening in the context of Jesus' life, where he's pointing us and what it means for us today. So Jesus had just returned from the, the, the land of the Gerasenes, where he had healed the demon-possessed man. We spoke about the demon-possessed man months ago now, uh, as we took our break and before Easter. But he comes back, and he's welcomed by this large crowd. Jesus is known for his healing and for his teaching, so they're kind of waiting for him. They can't wait to see him, right? He's been gone for a while. And I'm sure there's all kinds of new ailments and all kinds of new things happening. And they want to have uh, a chance to meet with Jesus. And this man named Jairus um, comes and he is of importance. He is uh, in the synagogue. He's likely the person that is in charge of the synagogue. What happens uh, during their services? What happens throughout the week? He might plan who prays and who reads the scriptures and who speaks. He had great importance in the community. But here he is in a desperate situation. In a horrible situation, a situation that even if you don't have children, you can imagine that your child is near death. I mean, this is the the worst thing that could possibly happen. And so he comes and he lays before Jesus and and he says, please, Jesus, please help me. Is there any way that you can come and heal my child? You have to imagine his desperation to understand the situation. He was willing to try anything, to do anything. Maybe Jesus, this miracle worker from Nazareth, could make a difference. It also reminds us that this man, Jairus, had power and privilege and position and reputation and money. But in the end, he was powerless to fix this situation. And every single one of us, at some point in our lives, no matter how much money we have, no matter how much power we have, no matter how much privilege we have, will be face-to-face in complete and total need before God. Amen? So you can imagine his excitement when Jesus decides, yeah, let's go. So Jesus starts walking, and of course, everybody's crowding, and the language is used to these. They're pressing in against him, you know? Um, one time I was in New York City when I was in high school. Uh, we went there with my family. It was a really cool trip. And across the street, out of nowhere, we saw Muhammad Ali. Now, that's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. The, great, the greatest, right? The GOAT. My dad says, that's Muhammad Ali. You know, he grew up in the, like, the 60s and 70s, and that, that was it. Like, there's nobody greater than Muhammad Ali. And so we, he was just walking down the street. People were in front of him, but like nobody had noticed it was him yet, right? It was kind of early in the morning. So, of course, I've never seen my dad get giddy about anybody, you know? So he's running over, he's got his camera, and... and so we recognized him. We shook his hand. He was really nice. He was kind of doing this, you know, boxing thing. So, but then all of a sudden, everybody in the streets realized this is Muhammad Ali. So everyone's crowding. on. Everyone's trying. You know how it is. Like, they, they don't just want a picture. You didn't know, have smartphones. And no one's doing selfies. But they're, they're, they're trying to, like, touch him, right? They're trying to, like, just, like, feel like they're a part of, like, him acknowledge that their existence. They want to have a story to tell that they met. Muhammad Ali. So I kind of imagine this story like that. Like Jesus is walking in the street and everybody's trying to like, you know, just reach his shoulder. Hey, Jesus, you know, it's it's great to see you. And uh, hey, my mom's got the flu and you know, my like whatever, you know, it's like they're they're trying to get a piece of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is walking down the street and there's probably dozens of people touching him. And he says, someone's touched me. Yeah, no kidding, right? Like, I mean, Peter kind of says that. He kind of says, yeah, I mean, everyone's pressed up against you, Jesus. You know, it's like, he says, well, power has left me, which is a very weird statement. I mean, you think about, that's a, what does that even mean? Like, powers left? So if someone touches Jesus, like, you get his power? I mean, is, that, is that anybody? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what that exactly means. But somehow, I think he's just indicating, I know that something significant happened. In the midst of this crowd, a woman who had dealt with bleeding continuously for 12 years with no cure had touched him. Luke was likely a physician, most people think. And so it's kind of, I wonder if he was kind of had a smirk in his mouth when he's thinking, there's no cure for this. I know, I'm a doctor. No one could figure out what was wrong with this woman. Why she kept having these issues. She was without hope. And she was in considerable suffering. I think we can, we can look at the story and we can have immediate compassion for this woman's suffering. How horrible it must have been to be bleeding without medical care that would help her for 12 years. But I think because of our context, we may not understand the depth of this reality for this woman. It wasn't just the pain that she was going through. The implications for this woman bleeding means that she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. By her culture. She would have been ostracized. She would have been outcasted. She wouldn't have been able to permit, wouldn't have been permitted to take part in the temple worship or at the synagogue. Just a touch of her means that she would give her uncleanliness off to other people. And so likely no one really wanted to be near her. She probably hadn't had many people hug her or touch her for 12 years. So she felt like she had to approach Jesus in this way. Because if she had come openly, what would people say? Jesus, don't touch that lady. She's unclean. What if Jesus, I mean, she doesn't even know Jesus probably. What if he responds that way? Imagine how she would have felt ostracized and shunned again. And it's very hard for us to understand why would they have rules like that? Why would they have um, you know, situations where they would literally ostracize people just because there has some health concerns? But you, we have to understand this is the world before modern hygiene, right? Um, soap wasn't invented. In, like the, the soap we have today wasn't really invented till the Middle Ages. And so many of the things that we take for granted today, like running water and proper drains, just weren't in existence there. So purity taboos were were vital just to maintain public health. And so the Jewish scriptures are filled with these rules that, uh, that elaborate all the things you can and you can't do. It's almost like an art form. And the two most obvious sources of pollution were corpses and women with internal bleeding. So in other words, the first century reader that would have come across this story would have known its significance. This woman, by touching Jesus, had made him ceremonially unclean. This is why the woman wanted to stay hidden. This is why she was shy about coming forward. And then she was crushingly embarrassed eventually when she had to, when Jesus calls her out. She's probably thinking, no one's been able to help. Maybe this miracle worker can help me. And he does. So you ask yourself a lot of questions, right? Like you you read this text and you start asking questions. Once you kind of understand uh, all that's happening, why did Jesus make a spectacle of this very tender situation? Why did he ask her to come forward and make herself known? a strange thing for him to do this and almost embarrass her the way that he does. It's verse 47 says, the woman saw that she was not hidden and decides that she's finally going to admit what she has done. I think Jesus does this for two reasons. And then I think they're pretty simple. It was good for her in the long run and even necessary that her cure was widely known. Right? All of her acquaintances must have been aware of her permanent state of ceremonial uncleanliness. If she wanted to be received back to normal and religious and social life, it was necessary that her cure become a matter of public knowledge. So Jesus makes it known this woman is healed. You don't have to treat her the way that you're treating her any longer. I think the second reason is that Jesus wants to do something for this woman. Um, Her idea that she could just go touch him and she'd be healed, it's a little bit superstitious, right? It's a little bit of an odd way of of thinking about things. And I think that maybe an an element of this is that um, Jesus wanted to have a conversation with her to show her that it was her faith that counted and to establish a personal relationship with her. And I think the words also seem to indicate that he did not want to, to heal without knowing that this cost him something of himself. He became unclean, like he, the power went out from him, right? He, something happened in the midst of this. So in her trembling and nervousness, she must have wondered, is Jesus angry? Was your cure going to be taken away? Am I going to be shunned once again, this time by Jesus in the crowd? Was I being selfish to distract Jesus with my problem while he's on his way to heal this young girl? But Jesus waited as she gained the courage to come forward. And Jesus lifts up her faith and her fully restoring her to society. And as a pillar of faith in God's kingdom. Aligning himself with this ostracized woman, becoming unclean so that she might become clean. But there's another story that's going on here. And this is with Jairus. Start heading to Jairus' house, and you can imagine Jesus decides to stop. <laughs> Think about that. All right, I'm pleading, Jesus, like, all right, I'm going to go with you. We're going to go heal this daughter. And all of a sudden, Jesus, says, someone touched me, you know? And he has this long, drawn out conversation. I mean, if I'm Jairus, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that you're coming with me, but that's. You know, like, we got to make this thing happen, right? She's on her deathbed. Like, I would be, I'm like a task-oriented person, right? I would have been losing my mind. I'd be going like this, like, oh, my gosh, like, what's happening here? Like, you know, you're just like, Jesus, like, come on. And then Peter probably felt the same thing, right? He's saying, hey, everybody's touching you, Jesus. Like, let's go, right? Let's heal this, let's go heal this 12-year-old. This is an absolute desperate situation, and Jesus is stopping to talk about who touched him, hundreds of people are touching him simultaneous to this someone comes and the worst possible news comes in that moment comes to Jairus and Jesus and they say the girl died don't need to bother the teacher any longer imagine if you're Jairus you're like come on Jesus <laughs> like you really screwed me over there you know like we could have healed this woman in a couple hours but Jesus responds with one of his most iconic statements. He says, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. What is Jesus saying? Well, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I want to like, dig a little bit deeper into like, the original language here. This is what he's saying. He's saying, I want you right now to make an act of faith. I want you to put your trust in me right now, Jairus. Mark tells a story and he, use, he, he uses um, uh, the present tense of the verb. He says, keep believing. Will you keep believing in me right now? I know it seems crazy. I know it seems over. I know it seems lost, like hope is completely gone. But will you just make an act of faith right now? Will you just keep believing? Will you just trust in me that this is not over? And I think he's stressing this need for faith in these dire situations. The worst day of this man's life, Jesus is calling him to faith. Not blind faith, but faith that is convinced of who Jesus is. I think so often people talk about this. I hate, I hate this. They're like, oh, well, uh, you know, they hear you're a pastor, right? They hear, you don't have this, but I have this, okay? They'll say, maybe Tiana. <laughs> They'll say, oh, oh, so you're a man of faith. I said, I'm like, what do you mean by that? You know, like, what do you mean by faith? Like, I think that most people think that you're, like, against logic, right? You're you're against science, you know, when they say stuff like that. That you just, like, believe in, like, this, the fairy godmother, you know, and, like, Santa Claus. And it's like, no. Like, what Jesus is saying is uh, have faith in what you've just seen. I just healed this woman. Have faith in who you believe that I am and what I'm going to do in this moment. So when we say we have faith, what we're saying is we're drawing upon the fact that Jesus did do these miracles, right? That, that all that he has done before. We're not just believing something randomly for the sake of having faith, right? I also find it interesting in this story, in that previous miracle, Jesus makes a public spectacle of the situation, And here, as he goes to Jairus' houses, he does it in private, almost. He just invites his three closest disciples and the mom and dad. Seems like if Jesus really wanted to, I don't know, be more well-known, be famous, right? Invite everybody in, right? This is a pretty big deal. I'm going to raise this girl to life. But I think he does this, I'm assuming here, this is my guess, he does this for the girl's benefit. You imagine being a 12-year-old and uh, you come back to life and you got like hundreds of people around you looking at you, like screaming and yelling probably. And I mean, the mom and the dad and these intimate disciples of Jesus are there with him. It's probably to her benefit not to have all this attention on her. And she, and as Jesus shows up, there is these people that are wailing and crying, and and and, and you can imagine how um, sad this would be. I mean, if we lost somebody that age in our community, like the, the amount of weeping and mourning and loss that we'd experience. And Jesus kind of just says, "Stop. Why are you guys? Why are you crying? Why are you wailing?" Now she's just asleep. Now that may seem like a kind of a a, a weird thing for Jesus to say. Um. I don't think what it means is that she, they just misdiagnosed her. You know, uh, the, the people were like, no, she's dead. Like they laughed at him when he said that. They're like, no, she's like, we're sure we know when someone's dead. This girl is dead. And, you know, that's not the same thing as sleeping. Okay. But it's interesting that whenever believers are talked about in the New Testament, they're described as sleeping instead of being dead. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus uses this term that, that this, this young girl, she's just sleeping. New Testament believers are, are never said to die, but they're asleep. And of course, this brought laughter. They knew she was dead. And I think that sometimes we... Um, we think that all these people in the first century were just gullible, right? Like they'll just believe anything, right? So here's this girl sleeping. Jesus literally just goes and wakes her up. They thought she was dead because she was sick before. Now she's alive. Voila, raise her to life. Go tell everybody Jesus is, you know, the Messiah and all these things. No, I mean, they, 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 they thought Jesus was being ridiculous. This is the only time, one of the only times in the New Testament where it's said that people laugh. Like they're, they're mockingly laughing him for saying these things. They were not these gullible, I don't know, uneducated idiots. Sometimes they're framed to be by no means whatsoever. So what is it from these stories, these amazing miracles that we're supposed to understand? I have two things and then I have one that's more of a general thing because it's Pentecost Sunday that I want to touch on. The first one's minor, the, first, the second one's the major thing. I think the reason that Luke included this. But the first one I think is more minor, and it's this. It is often the case that we think what we think God ought to do right now, God chooses to act on later. While what we put off, he chooses to handle right away. So in these stories, the thing that's probably the most pressing is this girl, yet Jesus puts that off <laughs> and handles what's happening that probably could have been handled later. So he almost says this backwards. And so trusting in God requires us to accept his timing at times. No matter how difficult that can be. And the second thing I think is pivotal and I think is the main point of this passage. I already mentioned how Jesus had become unclean by the first woman of no choice of his own. But he became unclean so that she might be clean. Now, here in the second case, Jesus becomes doubly polluted. Maybe just double polluted would be the right way to say that. This case was different as Jesus deliberately went and touched a dead body. Now, for us, that may not be that big of a deal. I I don't want to go around touching dead bodies, but we wouldn't be ostracized or we wouldn't be considered unclean. We wouldn't have to go and do ceremonial washes if we did such a thing. But in this case... The result of this and what Jesus is doing would have been breathtaking to this audience. That Jesus, the Messiah, goes and intentionally becomes unclean in order to raise this girl to life. And what we find in May, Luke's main theme of Jesus uh, in his arrival from Jerusalem, but building up until that point um, of his arrest and death, the main theme is how these, this Jesus, innocent of anything that would condemn him to crucifixion, takes the place of the guilty. So this is meant to be like a foreshadowing, right? This is meant to be a foretaste of what's going to come in just a short time. In these incidents, we can see a pattern and a foretaste of what's coming. Jesus shares the pollution of sickness and death, but by the power of his love, he turns that pollution into wholeness and hope. This is the picture of the gospel. Jesus aligning himself with the broken. Jesus aligning himself with the unclean. Jesus aligning himself with dead people so that they can be raised to life. We are dead in our trespasses to sin. Jesus makes us alive in Christ through faith. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. Amen? The last thing that I want to say in light of what Sunday it is, and this is not something that you just gathered necessarily from this passage, but I think it's something that we should discuss. One of the most incredible statements in all the scriptures, the Apostle Paul he says this a couple different ways in a couple, of different, and a couple of different times. That essentially says that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, or raised Jairus' daughter, or healed this woman of twelve years' bleeding, uh, lives in us. Romans six ten through eleven says this: the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. Think about that: the Spirit of God that raised Jesus to life lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Ephesians 1, 19-20 says something similar. And, and he's, at this point, Paul's saying a prayer. He says, I, and I pray that, that you'll know his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. I grew up in uh, traditions of church that de-emphasized the Holy Spirit. We were all about Jesus and God the Father, uh, very little about the Holy Spirit. And so I always, whenever someone, Jesus would say, like he says this in John, he says, you know, it's better that I leave because the Holy Spirit's coming. I always thought, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, I... I want to be hanging out with Jesus. Like, that's better by far, right, than this. But the point of these miracles is not to just believe in miracles, but to believe in Jesus. To believe Jesus, who he is, and his power over death. I think what we can draw is that Jesus had, you know, he, everything that he did was by the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, and that we are meant to live in this same way. And the early Christians believed that the Holy Spirit was living in them, and, that, and they're moving, and they're speaking, and they're they're... Their everyday life, the the Holy Spirit was working to give them faith, working to give them strength, working to give them power, working to give them courage, working to give them uh, compassion, all these things that we need in our lives in order to walk with Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples, the same power that raised this young girl to life, the same power that raised Christ to death, now lives in us. And the implication of that is astounding for our very lives. It means that those of you that are in the thick of something right now, in this moment, maybe you haven't told anybody about it. Maybe you don't know where to turn. Maybe you're you're experiencing suffering and pain. Bearing this incredible weight. Maybe you have no confidence that you can beat that addiction or get through this hard time. I want to say to you that you probably can't on your own. But God promises us to never leave us nor forsake us. And the same power that raises, grow to life lives in you. You can fend off the devil. <laughs> you can resist sin. You can have faith and you can experience healing in your life right now. I want you to believe this morning. I want us to believe as a community that the Holy Spirit is real and active and in this room right now, convicting us of sin, drawing us to greater faith, encouraging us, showing us compassion and love, drawing us nearer to Christ. It's not just that the Holy Spirit came. It's that the Holy Spirit is here. And the Holy Spirit wants to minister to the deepest recesses of our souls today. Spirit is crying out that you are beloved, that you don't have to be afraid, that God is not, is for you and not against you. The Holy Spirit might be crying out this morning that Jesus became unclean so that we might be clean, so that we might be healed. Amen?